Some of you may not know his story. I'll admit, I didn't. But David J. Dennis Sr. was a titan of the civil rights movement. Born in Louisiana, he joined the movement while at Dillard University in New Orleans. Like many people, he got pulled into the movement reluctantly at first. But by the time he was in his early 20s, he was the field director for the Congress of Racial Equality in Louisiana and Mississippi. He was working with Bob Moses to organize voter registration and turnout, and he was risking his life as a freedom writer. David Dennis Sr. helped organize the Mississippi Freedom Summer. He challenged the Democratic Party at virtually every level to become more integrated. He put his life on the line time and time and time again, and he lost close friends. Friends like Medgar Evers, who was gunned down outside of his home. Friends like James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, who were abducted and murdered because of their work in Mississippi. David survived, but he also lived with the guilt of that. For years, he couldn't talk about the movement until one day, Bob Moses brought him back into the fold, and David found new purpose leading the Southern Initiative Algebra Project in Mississippi and traveling across the country to talk about the movement. David Dennis Jr. grew up surrounded by that, and he's become a titan in his own right. He's an award-winning journalist that has chronicled the ongoing freedom struggle embodied through the work of groups like Black Lives Matter. He won the 2021 American Mosaic Journalism Prize for his incredible coverage of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Now that father and son duo have a new book out chronicling the way that the movement shaped their lives. Today on The Reckon Interview, we're going to hear from David Dennis Jr. He'll talk about The Movement Made Us, their new book, and what it was like growing up in a civil rights household and working on this project with his dad. We also talk about the way that movements are shaped by young people and the ongoing trauma of surviving a fight that never ends. As David Jr. asks, can you call something post-traumatic stress disorder if the trauma is still ongoing? It's an incredibly powerful and personal book, and I'm excited to give you a taste of it on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. David Dennis Jr., welcome to The Reckon Interview. Oh, thanks for having me. Super excited. Big fan of, of, of you guys and all the stuff you do. Well, thank you so much. It's definitely mutual. We're here to talk about your new book, Out Tomorrow, The Movement Made Us. It's a really beautiful and gripping, powerful, sometimes painful story about you and your father and the way that your family's lives were shaped by the civil rights movement. Your dad is also your co-author, David Dennis Sr. He was a major figure in the movement, especially in Mississippi and Louisiana. To start out, can you tell us what you knew about your dad's story before you started working on this book with him? I knew broad strokes and then very specific stories, right? So I knew Freedom Ride, Freedom Summer, you know, that he was good friends with Megger Evers, that he was good friends with James Cheney, Mickey Schwerner, those things. And then I knew some of the stories that are involved in, you know, that are in the book. So like the last night he had with Mega Evers and later in life, much later in life, you know, that he went to the Harlem riots, you know, that he was there when the Harlem riots were happening. So, you know, very, very detailed stories and they're very sort of macro what he did. But what I didn't know was sort of like the day to day in my head. I didn't have a chronology of this stuff. And also I didn't have, an understanding of just how young he was. This is the sort of the metaphor I always use is that when your parents tell a story about when they're young, even if they're like, you know, when I was seven, I would, you know, go play tag with my friends. You imagine like your old mom and dad doing that, right? And so I didn't really understand and fully grasp that this was a 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid surrounded by other 20-year-old kids trying to figure this out. So, so those are some of the things that, that I learned. Well, it was fascinating, you know, and I imagine this is pretty common for a lot of people who were involved with the movement at the time. You know, he didn't necessarily set out wanting to be involved with the movement. You know, you start out talking about 
he was just trying to to follow a girl and wanted to get a date and suddenly found himself caught up in the movement in New Orleans. Is that a common story, do you think, from what you've been able to research while working on this book? Yeah, I mean, especially so my dad's involvement in the movement came from being a Dillard University student and running into Doris Castle, who was a central figure in New Orleans core and sort of running into her and while she was recruiting people to core and he just wanted to take her on a date. Right. And so what you find out and, and that's sort of in the book is that there was a whole, you know, so many of the people who were in those meetings were guys trying to go on dates with Doris Castle. <laughs> so like, you know, she understood what it took to sort of get folks into this movement. And there was an intentionality behind her trying to recruit folks, you know? And I think vastly important because nobody is a five-year-old kid and says, I want to fight for voting rights, get arrested and beaten and try to get us free. You know, like we have dreams of doing things. My dad wanted to be an engineer, you know? And so in general, nobody in the book sought out to be who they were. They just sort of happened upon it. My dad, I think, would have been, you know, perfectly fine going to the core meetings, you know, making picket signs and helping with the training and then graduating and being an engineer and going the rest of his life. You just find yourself embedded in this and you just it pushes you, it pulls you and you go as far as you can go. Some people did not go or did not want to go as far as that. And they did what they could. Don Hubbard, who was one of the core New Orleans core members who's mentioned in the book, you know, he had a wife and a child and a job and things like that. And so he was very much like, I'm going to drive you guys. Y'all get arrested. I have a livelihood. And he tried to not do that. But of course, it, they still came from and, and had him in some dire straits also back then. Well, it's one of the things I like about the title of the book, you know, the movement made us like it molded us, it shaped us, but also the movement made us do these things It called us to do these things that they didn't necessarily set out to do. Your dad initially, you know, he like you said, he wanted to be the guy who was helping train picket. The first time that he was arrested, it sort of happened by accident. He thought he was showing up to to a situation where he was guaranteed not to get arrested. Can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, so. As he was in core and doing these things, he was meeting a lot of folks, Jerome Smith, Rudy Lombard, people who were just instilling a lot of this movement work to him. And he was, you know, we go back and forth over this where we talk about where he began his movement work. And, you know, he considers the Freedom Riders to begin his movement work. And I tell him, you know, well, you were doing all this stuff back then that was contributing to a movement. Right. And so he was doing all of that, but he was very, very staunch about the fact that, like, I am not getting arrested. You know, I'm not doing any of this stuff that's going to jeopardize my education. My dad was the first person in his family to graduate high school, go to college, that stuff. He was dead set on that. There was a sort of loose treaty going on, a peacetime thing in the city of New Orleans and the core members where you could, you know, if you pick it in a certain way at a certain area, a certain amount of people, they weren't going to arrest you. Right. And so they had assured my dad that, you know, you're not, everything's going to be fine. You're going to go out there, we come home. And so in the middle of it, he had read the castle, Doris's older sister, another central figure, of the New Orleans Corps had, you know, instructed him to go around to a, a different area. And that's where you can't go. And so then he ended up arrested for that. So his first, you know, his first time out there, he was arrested. And not only was he arrested for the protest, but he was so 
adamant to the police that like, you're not supposed to do this. And like, please just let me go. You'll never see me again. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just, I just want to go to school. And he was so adamant about it that he ended up getting an obstruction of justice charge or something like that, that caused him to, you know, have even more, <laughs> you know, legal trouble. And while he was there, him and Jerome started, you know, they were sending messages to to the newspaper. They were doing, you know, hunger strikes. They sort of were getting more and more invested into the movement work. And it's interesting. You talked about him not really thinking that his movement work got started until he did the Freedom Rides. And there's an interesting part in one of your first letters to him in the book. Y'all discuss kind of the nature of activism. And he thought that he wasn't really an activist until he was willing to die for what he believed in. And that, that was the Freedom Rides. But then I guess later he comes around on this idea that to quote him, the movement work is coalition work where each individual contributor must be met where they are without shame or guilt over how much little they suffer, sacrifice or risk freedom. That this work takes everyone doing what they can for the shared goal of liberation. That the word activist should be inclusive, not one used to parse out different hierarchies of freedom fighting where the pain we've endured becomes our work's currency. And it's interesting because you also talk about, you know, your kind of rocky relationship with the word activist. So where do you come down on that now? Yeah, I, so that was one of the things I was thinking about in, in doing this is what constitutes the idea of activism, right? And of course, a lot of this was written in the George Floyd era and a lot of the and all of the book was obviously written after Ferguson. You know, so when you see all this stuff happening, Ferguson, Trump, George Floyd, all this, you think like this is too big for me. Like I don't even know where to start. And if I want to make change, I have to be Martin Luther King, I have to be Mega Evers, and I have to be capital A activist, right? And I think that sometimes folks say, well, you weren't out there on the street. You didn't do enough. You didn't get arrested. You weren't doing enough. And I think it's a deterrent. It deters people from actually doing what they can. And one of the goals of the book is for people to understand that the us in the movement made us is, is everybody. They contributed in some way. You know, like if you were, you know, like if you were a teacher in Mississippi, you were a middle class and you cannot afford to lose your job and you were feeding multiple people. And you can be out there protesting, but you may donate some of your money, which was hard to come by, you know, or if you are a family in Greenville, Mississippi, and you are out by yourself. And if they find out that you're doing anything, they'll, you know, you could die or they'll, you know, you lose your job do whatever children, they'll burn your house down, which they were doing. But if you housed a family or you housed a Freedom Summer volunteer and fed them, you were integral in the movement, you know? And so my hope is that folks read this and think, I don't have to be capital A activist to be part of this change. Like I can do something, you know, like I can be in my job and advocate for more, you know, black folks in my job or whatever, you know, like you can do something, like as long as you're doing something, you're doing something. And I think that often there's this divide between who is an activist and who is not. What is the line between, an activist and somebody affecting change, you know, like I'm not going to go. That's why the word sort of makes me uncomfortable, which is what I was grappling with. I have no interest in getting arrested or getting pepper sprayed or doing all that stuff, but I am going to contribute in the ways that I, that I feel are going to help. You know, I think that that's just what one of the things I grapple with, with the story. And one of the things that people have their own definition for, but for me, I just feel as though 
that word and the idea of the threshold of what makes you an activist sometimes can be off-putting for people who are trying to figure out how to, how to work their way into all of this. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this is the week where Elon Musk has made headlines for buying Twitter. And so there's been a lot of conversation about Twitter as the public square and the way that it has, it's done a lot of good in recent years in terms of elevating videos like the death of George Floyd or Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin. It's also spread a lot of misinformation and it does seem to, you know, sometimes boil down in people attacking each other for not being activists enough or being too much of an activist or not an activist in the right way. And so I was reading through this book and, and thinking about like, I don't really know what that movement would have looked like 60 years ago <laughs> with Twitter. You know, you've been covering this for the last several years in terms of Black Lives Matter movement. You know, how do you think that activism has changed today? It's certainly on a more expansive scale. Back then it was more localized and, and tactical. So how, how has activism changed in the last 60 years? I think one of the good things is that it's it's more decentralized in a way in which like you still need the local movements. I mean, all this starts with local movements. You know, Ferguson started with folks on the ground taking pictures, you know, like it all sort of, you know, Twitter amplifies and just like sort of the what one of the ways I wanted to frame movement work back then is that, you know, core SNCC. NAACP were there to sort of amplify movements that were already in place, you know, and I think that sometimes folks think social media is a replacement for that when it's it's not the case, you know, like there, you, you know, people can tweet and go fly to Minneapolis, but if you don't know what the main street is where you're supposed to be marching, you know, you just walking around nowhere. It has changed the idea that you can amplify things larger. I mean, the 2020 marches the largest, you know, mass protest in United States history. And that is because of the way that you can, that social media can sort of bind those voices together. And I think also one of the good things is that there are fewer backwoods now. You think about Ahmaud Arbery is one of those stories that we would have never heard of. When Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner went missing, there were multiple bodies that had been found while in those, you know, 44 days or whatever, looking for them, there are multiple bodies that had been found that nobody ever knew had been missing, you know? So I think one of the things is that, you know, a Brunswick, Georgia becomes a central location because now we can spread that around, you know, but I do think that in all these cases, we should remember that it's the local movement that is, that that's where all this starts anyway. Yeah, there's a haunting part early on in the book where your father describes, you know, seeing the pictures of Emmett Till and realizing, oh, like all those people that kind of disappear around here, that's what happens to them. And, you know, like you said, that one of the benefits of, of cell phones and cameras is that fewer of those things hopefully happen today than, than it did. I'm sure some of it still happens. You know, it's interesting, your father's definition of activism at that one point of being willing to die for what he believes in. You also kind of illustrate the way that that can become survivor's guilt because, you know, he did have friends like Megar Edwards who were killed and he survived. And, you know, I, I'm, I mean, it's not a psychological diagnosis, but it seems like a form of PTSD that a lot of people had after that chapter of the movement was over. Yeah. So my dad, um, when he went to law school, 
um, in Michigan and he was having trouble sleeping, you know, this is early, early seventies had trouble sleeping and couldn't focus on school. And there would be, if, if he slept in a place that had a wood floor, if there was a Creek, he would, you know, jump out of bed and wonder what what's going on. And, you know, the psychologist there said, look, you were exhibiting some of the same symptoms as somebody who went to Vietnam. And there are tons of stories of PTSD. I mean, even the, like, not even the, the mental, but obviously there's the physical aspect of people who are beaten, who never recover from those injuries, but the PTSD of, of watching your friends die and being in a war where you were not, there was no home base. You know, there was no like safe base that you can go to and be like, okay, I can sleep here for the night. Like Magrevers was shot in front of his house. And so, yeah, so that PTSD is, is a real thing. And, and I also sort of argue if, it is like, where is the post in it if the trauma is unending? Where is the PTSD of it if, you know, my dad's, you know, me, my dad's son is still getting pulled over by police and under the same sort of siege that he was under, you know, and his grandchildren under. So where is the the post? Like, you you know, you PTSD, you think about war, you go to Vietnam, go to Afghanistan, you come to America and you're, po- you're at his post, <laughs> you know. But dad moved back to Mississippi in the 90s. So he was back there where it was. And there are still these things happening. So where does the post actually come in? What is interesting is that, like you said, where where does the post come in? This stuff is still happening. None of this is ancient history. Like we sometimes in terms of American textbooks and things like this, we talk about the civil rights movement as if it was actors who were doing these things decades ago. But your father just turned 80, 81 He's still here. You know, we we run into foot soldiers and obviously people who were on the other side of it, too, at the gas station and at the grocery store. And I guess I had always kind of thought that maybe we talk about it that way because white people want to whitewash history and don't want to talk about that because of our role in it. But it does seem like, you know, there's an element to which people like your father and Bob Moses, you know, Bob Moses went to Africa. Fred Shuttlesworth went to Ohio, Rosa Parks went to Detroit, that, you know, there was a period where that the people most active in the movement just couldn't talk about it for a while. And, and so what led to your father finally being able to talk to you about it? So dad was, you know, sort of left New Orleans and Corn in 68. And for the most part, never really talked to anybody about it, never did any interviews. He did Eisner Prize in the 80s and like um, one with James Baldwin in, in the early 80s. But for the most part, never never really talked about it. And it was really Bob Moses who came back from Africa and, and you know, one, he was into this, uh, this idea of math as a frontier of equality. And so he sort of brought dad back into thinking about this stuff. There was also, there was the civil rights, the museum was opening in, in Memphis and all this stuff was happening. And, um, Mississippi burning had just come out and there was all of this talk about how inaccurate and, whitewashed that story was so the wheels were sort of turning and bob just kept on pushing at dad to come back to mississippi and so he spent most of my childhood you know reliving these memories for the first time which is something that i did not realize that we were doing this book <laughs> you know that he was doing for the first time i just that just didn't register to me until we were doing the book and so when we when it got time to work on the book 
a lot of these stories, I'd sort of heard some of the, some aspect of them before, but there were parts that were just extremely painful for him to go back to. There was a lot of stuff that he did not remember. There was stuff that even now he's still remembering. You know, I, t- I had to tell him, look, you can't remember nothing else. This book's done. Like, if you remember something else, just uh, don't even tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> so we're, we're working out, you know, we're working out memories in real time. And I was digging through files, digging through the newspaper clippings and trying to recreate this as best we could based on on what we saw and what he remembered. But there were things that were locked away and things that he was open about. But it was a a trying process. And you all were having to do a lot of this over Zoom because of the coronavirus pandemic. Is that right? Yeah. So there was an idea that uh, some of this book, like the stuff in my voice, the letters, uh, which were not letters originally. We're going to be sort of me writing about dad as we travel to some of these places. You know, we went to Shreveport briefly, but we wanted to go back to Shreveport. Uh, Wanted to go. We did did a little Jackson. We're going to go back to Jackson. We're going to go to Harlem. And, you know, we're going to try to go to all of these different places. The last time, I mean, we went to Jackson. We went to Megger's, Megger Evers off old office and did some of that stuff. And that was literally like two weeks before things shut down. So we had to spend a lot of the rest of the time on Zoom, which actually it was dad and I for two hours every Sunday sitting in front of Zoom talking about our memories and our feelings. So I think it, it actually ended up being something that was therapeutic for both of us. Coming up after the break, more from David Dennis Jr. about the ways that this project changed him and changed his relationship with his father. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. You know, your relationship with your father not being what you wanted it to be as a child. What was it like? You know, I'm always curious about what it's like to grow up surrounded by the movement and have all these important figures in your life and your dad be an important figure in the world. You know, what was that like for you as a child? It was two things. There were two things here. There was the Dave Dennis civil rights hero, and then there was dad. And so there was a Dave Dennis who I just looked up to because, I mean, he did so much and there were so many people who respected him, who were in and out of the house. Bob Moses was in the house all the time. People like that who just always had something great to say about him and the work that he'd done. But then there was also dad who would thrust himself back into this movement work. And that required, you know, lots of travel, lots of late nights, lots of thinking about other people, you know, and and that's just what movement work is, thinking about a lot of other folks. And for me, you know, our relationship, I was like, well, that's part of the sacrifice for the movement. You know, like I'll just wait until he comes home. And that's just what we do for for other folks. And it became, it was something where he wasn't at home or he weren't, you know, as spending as much time as I would have liked. It was difficult, especially when you get older and your family is, you know, my parents divorced and your family sort of splintered and you're trying to pull it together. But the foundation of it is the fact that like, there's always something that you feel you know, that you agree with is more important than, than your relationship. Like I was like, this is, you got to go out there and save the world, <laughs> you know, go do it. And, and that's fine. You know, to what extent did you feel the need to live up to that legacy, to, to be a part of the movement? To what extent did you feel like you didn't want to be a part of the movement because you wanted a different relationship with your family? How did that shape you? Yeah. So for me to 
sort of right the ship was to be the best dad and husband possible. And my dad had always, you know, he'd always admired me or say he admired me for being that. That was his, I guess, what his idea of, of writing the ship was. And he says that he never, you know, was concerned about me in, in doing that kind of work because he just sort of felt, you know, you just feel that that was just what would happen, that I would just find myself into it. But for me, you know, it, it was a real conflict for me, especially around Ferguson, when all this stuff is happening. And I feel as though, I need to be a part of it. I need to go to Ferguson. I need to go march with folks. I need to be on the street. This is this is what's going on. My dad did this. I need to do this. But at the same time, I had equated that kind of work with losing your family. You know, I thought like I didn't want my children to think that they should their our relationship was part of the sacrifice of the movement. You know, I didn't want my, you know, want my wife to be up worrying where I was and stressed out about that. And, and, you know, our relationship before, I just didn't want, like, that was more important to me, but I was at the same time feeling like I was letting down Dave Dennis while making dad proud of me. How did your relationship with your father change over the course of, of working on this book? And, and did you ever get pushback from him, you know, when you were wanting to explore certain parts of his history? I didn't really get a lot of pushback from him in terms of him saying, I don't want to talk about it. You know, like he was never like, well, let's, you know, you're digging too deep. It was more so he would, there would be certain periods of like a shutdown a little bit where it was just too painful for him to, to get back to. There was just the unconscious shutting down also in the fact that, you know, his mind and body just would not remember certain things. You know, there are just certain things that he just, Still to this day, he's I'm like, you know, dad, I, there's evidence that you were at this thing. And he's like, I, I guess so. <laughs> you know, like there's that part of it, too. Our relationship. I mean, dad and I got into a, a good place. You know, we were at a good place before the book, but we had gotten to a good place without speaking about getting to that good place. And so with the book, we got to an even better place because we were talking about that journey to how to how we got there. What was your favorite story that you learned about your dad while writing this book? My favorite story is, is them shutting down the state fair in Shreveport because it's just so like, it's just so ingenious. What they did is, you know, so Shreveport, the fair, the state fair was a huge deal. I mean, all the trade folks would come down and sell whatever, and there was a fair, right. But they would have like a, a black day, right. Had a lot of different names, Dog Day, Black Day, you know, N-Word Day, whatever. And it was just one day in the week where they would shut down some of the rides, some of the venues. The black folks could just go and just be in the fair. Like they got like a watered down version of the fair and it was just them. So they wanted to desegregate that fair. And so the first thing they did is as a community was that they occupied all the kids during that day. So the black people would not go to that fair, you know, so they would have. Friedman and Harris, the chicken place would would have cooked fried chicken and the churches would have, uh, you know, events at all the churches in the city and everybody just spread the word not to go. But they wanted to take it a step further and just sort of ruin it, ruin the fair for everybody. And what they did is they would just have a smattering of young black kids amongst the white crowd that was sort of in the opening ceremony thing they would just talk amongst themselves loud enough for the white folks to hear and be like you know those kids are going to come up in here and, and like tear this place up you heard about it right you know you heard that these black kids these rowdy black kids like 
they would did it so much. They even had flyers for like, you know, we're going to do so much that nobody showed up. The white folks did not show up because they were so scared about what these radical black folks going to do. Meanwhile, dad and all his other friends just sit hanging out, you know, sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> that level of just ingenuity and thinking outside the box about how to disrupt it's just so fascinating to me. These young folks who were just like, it was lots of sit-ins, lots of protests, lots of getting arrested, but they knew that there wasn't the money to bail them out. They couldn't get out of jail. They had lives to live. How can we disrupt this in a way that also keeps us safe and use white fear of black folks and weaponize it against themselves? And, and it was just, it was just such a brilliant idea and there's probably uh, cities all across the South where the kids were just doing things like this that were just so brilliant. And so, I, yeah, I just love that story. The work that people were doing then and today to disrupt things shows you how brilliant young people can be. How has your father changed in the process? I think he's just generally happier. I think that he is happy to have gotten this off of his chest. I think that he's happy with that our relationship's better. He feels open in a way that he kind of was not before, you know, you, he does a lot of speaking engagements. And a lot of times people know what, what notes to hit, you know, they know if he talks about it enough, he know, he can go into autopilot, but this was a way for him to tell stories that were not, you know, that he'd held so close to him that he had forgot that he was holding close to him. So I think he's, it's almost like a breath of fresh air, I think for him. You know, what lessons can we learn from your dad's generation and from the work that you've been covering for the last decade? And what's the easiest way for young people to get involved today? Yeah, I, th I think the lesson, like the thing that I wanted to press upon people is that, like, these are real folks. These are just regular people who did tremendous things. And like, you should not feel so overcome by the massive, you know, inequality going on, like as this was happening. As I was writing this book, George Floyd is happening. Donald Trump's president. We have a pandemic that is killing black folks at a rate that's higher than everybody else. Poverty, you know, the income gap was growing. It just felt like too much. And so what I want folks to think about is that, like, don't, you know, try to affect change. Don't try to affect change thinking you're going to be Martin Luther King, you know, or Dave Dennis or Bob Moses or Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker or anything like that. Just do something. And if everybody does something then it'll work itself out. You know, like if you if everybody like does something to create change, somebody will step up and be, you know, this person. Somebody will step up and do this. Somebody will be, you know, who they who they are. Like like my dad was a masterful, like the Shreveport store, masterful community organizer. I am not, <laughs> you know, like I can't, I can't get people together to do nothing, you know, but I can write, you know, I can write, I can chronicle, I can do that to try to do my part. I'm not going to try to community organize, you know, I'll leave that up to somebody else, but I, I've found what my part is and maybe it'll grow, you know, or maybe I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm doing something, you know? And I think if everybody has that mindset that if I just do one thing, maybe it'll be two things and maybe it'll just be one thing, but at least we're doing something. So you don't feel so over overwhelmed by the need to be either med grabbers or nobody. So how has your relationship with the South changed, uh, you know, as you were working on this book and having to revisit some of these stories in Mississippi and, and Louisiana? I'm, I've always been a proud, you know, I, I was never one of those people that was like, but I was, I was never, 
one of those people who, you know, felt like, all right, I got to get out of Mississippi. I love Mississippi. And one of the reasons I love it is because we as a state have in many ways set a blueprint for getting black folks free. Like we are a state in much like Alabama in a lot of ways that is the ground zero for the worst things that white supremacy can do to black folks or can try to do to black folks. Right. But we're also the blueprint of how you can fight it, you know? And I went into it feeling a lot of pride about the South, but I feel even more of a, just like what we did in Mississippi and especially Mississippi and Louisiana, especially where a lot of this stuff is, is centered around, which are my two, two homes essentially is like, we did is like the most set upon people, the most like that they've tried to oppress folks in this country, you know, did the most to fight back and to change it, you know, and I just have an immense just amount of pride for what, you know, what was we were able to do and continue to do. I mean, there's just so many active movements in Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, Alabama, all across the South, especially the deep, deep South, that I just feel my chest getting bigger. Like, I feel like I can walk my head high because of what's what's in this book. Well, David, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. You can pick up a copy of this book starting tomorrow, The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to David Dennis Jr. for joining us today. And thank you to him and his father for everything they've done to make the South and country a better place. Please head to your local bookstore to pick up a copy of The Movement Made Us, which comes out tomorrow. And remember that we're surrounded by so many stories like these, if only we take the time to ask. If you're liking our show, please help us grow it by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your friends. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.